This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. Today I will be reading Divorce and Romanticism, The City of Man versus The City of God by Plinio Correa de Oliveira. This article was first published in Catholicismo, October of 1951, in Portuguese. It was translated and published in the March-April 2014 issue of Crusade magazine. On analyzing many of the works that have been written against divorce, we can conclude that overall they deserve praise for their seriousness, clarity, and balanced reasoning. However, nearly all use arguments that are somewhat academic. The arguments they proffer are fine for persuading well-intentioned intellectuals, but as a general rule, they are entirely ineffective for the vast majority who make up public opinion, which, ranging between indissolubility and divorce, strongly leans toward the latter. So one who is pro-divorce may be reduced to an embarrassed and bored silence by listening to conclusive arguments proven by facts and figures on how divorce is harmful to the family and to society. He might even remain silent for a while, muttering something under his breath. But soon he starts all over again with the same point, quote, So the unhappy spouse cannot begin his or her life again? Is it fair to deprive spouses of the right to rebuild their happiness? Unquote. All of us who have fought against divorce know how frequent this attitude is. The clearest reasons, the most penetrating arguments, simply roll off this attitude like water off a duck's back. For advocates of divorce merely retreat into themselves when exposed to the hammer of logic, and when the firing stops, they re-emerge unchanged from their lairs. Therefore, to gain ground, an effective anti-divorce campaign must take this fact into consideration. We must realize that we have not yet fully explored the way to approach or penetrate such mentalities. It is essential to identify the cause of this state of mind so that we may find the argumentation that will meet it. That is why I want to speak about Romanticism. History books tell us that this school of thought has died, which is true if we are talking about the Romantic movement in literature and art. But is it equally true if we are talking about life in general? Do the ways of thinking and feeling that Romanticism created really have no bearing on the mental and emotional habits of our contemporaries? Regarding marriage in particular, is it true that people's attitudes today are free from Romantic influence? And what relationship exists between this influence and the problem of divorce? First, let us recall some of the heroes and heroines of Romanticism. There is the sensitive type of hero. He can be imagined as handsome, a clean-cut youth whose melancholic eyes search the empty horizon. A bit unkempt, his chest heaves with undefined, burning aspirations, tortured by the thought of finding perfect happiness in love. But no one understands him. In the deep recesses of his soul are awesome horizons. There are indescribable desires that beg to be understood by a sister's soul. Somewhere in this great world, there is a being made to understand him. He is searching for her. Only in finding her will he have happiness. 
And so he wanders sadly through life until he meets her. Then there is the romantic hero of the terrible type. He is morally identical to the previous type, though somewhat different in appearance. He exudes manliness, has an athletic physique, and a rather dark attractiveness, like a character from one of Wagner's operas. He commands a great fortune, high social status, immense influence, everything in short that life can offer. But, and here is the romance of the scenario, there is a deep wound in his heart, a burning love, a tremendous disappointment, a weight as heavy and cold as a tombstone that will never find on the face of the earth a love that matches his heart's desires. Parallel to this is the figure of the heroine. It would not be difficult to find a couple of typical examples. The first is the delicate type. She is charming, fragile of soul and body. Any pain and she begins to cry. Any abrasion of her soul makes her suffer. Simple as a child, she carries in her heart an immense desire to dedicate herself to someone and be wanted by someone. She needs to be protected because of her complete fragility, a fragility that is reflected in the meekness of her gaze, in the sweet inflections of her voice, in the refinement of her features, in the delicacy of her complexion. The other example would be the heroine of the grandiose type, a dazzling beauty with the stature and bearing of a queen. She is the natural center of attention, esteem, and dedication, a dominating and fatal presence. But, of course, deep in her heart is a hidden trembling, a profound sorrow, a great and hidden pain. It is the bitterness of a past disillusionment, the anxious and hopeless search for someone who truly understands her. At her feet, poets, dukes, millionaires uselessly plead and groan. She is uninterested. With a haughty yet profound and sad gaze, she searches far and wide throughout life for that which she will never find. And what is that that she seeks? It is the happiness of a great love, as she understands love, according to her most noble and tormenting aspirations. She carries all this in her heart like a secret wound. The reader will perhaps smile. Doesn't all this seem outdated? Could anyone who sees a young man or a young woman passing by in a cheerfully colored car in this age of levity, recreation, and fitness doubt that we are light years away from romanticism? The young man is practical, strong, and joyful, seems well set in life, and burns with the desire to succeed. The young woman is also practical, independent, enterprising, and often avid for action. She is happy with life and wants to live it to the full. So what has she in common with the romantic heroine that moved our grandmothers to tears? We agree that modern utilitarianism has created a climate of tolerance for marriages that are inspired by cynically financial motives. Nor do we deny that calculations based on careers and social standing influence marriages nowadays much more than before. 
But if the numerous examples of such marriages today lead us to conclude that this is the general rule, we would be greatly mistaken. Sentiment remains very influential despite all the utilitarianism. And if we analyze this sentiment, we will see that it is simply a very superficial updating of the old romantic themes. In our democratic age, distinguished and exceptional characters are no longer acceptable. Today's hero is the popular guy, and the damsel is the glamour girl. These popular guys and glamour girls are all exactly the same as so many others. The mechanization of modern life forces them to be less outstanding than the heroes of yesteryear, and with fewer of those endless wanderings of the mind. All this somewhat restricts the effusions of imagination and sentimentality. But these restrictions notwithstanding, when it comes to matters of love, it is always the same sugary sentimentalism, the same vague desires. It is the same misunderstandings, the same search for affinities, the same crises, the same desires for affectionate and unending happiness, and the same chronic precariousness of all these happinesses. To prove this, we don't need a psychological study of second-rate literary and film fare that abounds today and that truly forms the spirit of the masses. I think it's sufficient that the reader have just a bit of common sense to see how just our observations are. In fact, the great majority of marriages today that result from falling in love are based on ideas thoroughly imbued with romantic sentimentalism. And this is the problem. We have some marriages based on mercenary self-interest and others on affection. And those that are based on affection are generally influenced by romanticism. This being so, the stability of a marriage will greatly depend on how long self-interest or romanticism will enable the spouses to endure one another. There is no reason to dwell on self-interest. I think it is clear enough. Let us concentrate instead on the influence of romanticism. Above all, we need to emphasize that romanticism is essentially frivolous. It eagerly presupposes the greatest virtues in the heroine or in the hero. But in the final analysis, these virtues count for very little in the survival of mutual affection. Sentimentalism is generally very forgiving of the real moral defects, ingratitudes, injustices, and even outright betrayals. But it does not forgive trivialities. So, for example, and let's take our examples from the flesh and blood of real life. It could be a ridiculous way of snoring at night. It could be bad breath. Or it could be any other small human misery that can kill romantic sentiments without any right of appeal. Romantic sentiments which, it must be remembered, have turned a blind eye to the most grave reasons for complaint. Now, daily life is a fabric woven of trifles, and there is no one who does not have some fault that is difficult to bear. Thus, it is commonplace to mention the disillusionments that come after the honeymoon. After this period, someone once told me, my wife didn't deceive me, but filled me with disillusionment. Romanticism, by its very essence and its very definition, is made of illusions, of whims, of uncontrolled passions, and hypothetical affections for people who exist only in dream worlds. 
Consequently, in a short time, the feelings that were the only psychological basis of marital stability begin to dissolve. Naturally, persons in this state do not search deeply for answers. They do not understand how totally unattainable their desires were and purely and simply assume that they made a mistake. They thus conclude that they can yet find in someone the happiness that this marriage did not afford. Accustomed to living only and exclusively for their own happiness, accustomed to seeing happiness exclusively as the gratification of sentimental feelings, such persons will judge their lives incurably ruined unless, of course, they are able to satisfy those illusions in another way. Moreover, they will judge equally ruined the lives of all the many other people who fell into the same mistake. So divorce will become absolutely necessary as the air that we breathe. What impression will a serious argumentation against divorce, reinforced by the cold language of statistics, possibly have on a person in this state of mind? Accustomed to mental wanderings but not to thinking, this person detests any form of argumentation above all when it is serious. The mere language of numbers seems ridiculous to such a person, and to talk to this person of the sociology of marriage and love will seem to him about as shocking as speaking of the most technical aspects of botany to a poet who is entertaining himself by admiring the beauty of a flower. Thus one can see that those who uphold the church's traditional teachings concerning the indissolubility of marriage would strike the wrong target by trying to use argumentation based on morality or on the common good with people who are only interested in their own individual happiness in a world of dreams and fantasy. In the final analysis, romanticism is sheer egoism. The romantic does not seek anything but his own happiness. He can only think of love in the sense that the other is an instrument for his happiness. He desires this emotional happiness so much that if free reign is given to his sentiments, they will jump all barriers of morality, will ignore considerations of the common good, and he will brutally satisfy his instincts. Nothing can be built on egoism, especially the family. It is necessary, therefore, to begin a tremendous anti-romantic offensive. It is necessary to explain the fundamental difference between Christian love and romantic sentimentalism that is still in fashion. It is necessary to explain that Christian love is something imbued with the supernatural, full of common sense and balance, profoundly pious, authentic, and generous. It triumphs over all the wild wanderings of the imagination and the rebellious senses and over the sensual, egotistical love of unrestrained passions. It is false to imagine that true Christian spouses are the heroes of a romance who by a happy coincidence build an authentic marriage according to canon law as a preliminary step to the mere satisfaction of their passions. As long as sentimentalist and romantic concepts influence the outlook of engaged couples, every marriage will be precarious because it will be built on the soft, shifting ground of human egoism. It is commonly said that the family is the basis of society. But as St. Augustine teaches, there are two societies, 
The city of man is built on love of self to the exclusion of God. The city of God is built on the love of God and neighbor to the exclusion of self. Marriages based on romantic sentiments and egoism are not the foundations of the city of God. Born in 1908, Plinio Carreira de Oliveira was the founder of the Brazilian Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, and the inspirer of 25 other sister organizations around the world. A brilliant scholar, writer, university professor, and lawyer, Professor de Oliveira was above all a great Catholic leader whose only ambition was to defend Christian civilization against a systematic destruction. He felt a special calling to work for the sanctification of families and temporal society and had a special charism to spot the subliminal evil influences of today's culture. By the time of his death in 1995, he had produced a wealth of writings in the form of meditations, articles, and books, sharing with us his unique gifts and insight. This article has been adapted without his revision. Thanks for joining us. If you want your free copy of the Return to Order book, or if you want to read more articles like this one, visit returntoorder.org. God bless.